Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval. I'm Matt Lewis. Today, I'd like to take you through the remarkable tale of a man whose life is a story of personal tragedy and illness for him and his family, played out on the international stage because he was a king. On the 21st of October 1422, 600 years ago this year, King Charles VI of France died. He was 53 years old and had been King of France for 42 years since 1380. It was common for medieval French monarchs to be given nicknames during his lifetime, Charles was known as Charles Le Bien Amé, the Beloved, but he's more often remembered now by a different epithet, Charles Le Folle, Charles the Mad. It's a reference to his mental health issues that frequently dogged his reign and have overshadowed his story. Because he was a king, his problems are better documented than most cases of mental illness in the medieval period. Given when he ruled France, during the Hundred Years' War and spanning the reigns of Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V and just tipping into Henry VI in England, his health was a central factor in international politics, but it doesn't tell his whole story. Charles was born on the 3rd of December 1368. He was the oldest son of Charles V and his wife Joanna of Bourbon. Charles V was King of France from 1364 until his death in 1380. He oversaw the creation of a standing army paid by the crown, restored law and order, and took back much of the land ceded to England after the early successes of the Hundred Years' War. Charles V left a strong military position and a replenished royal treasury. Joanna of Bourbon was the daughter of the Duke of Bourbon. She married Charles V in 1350, when they were both 12 years old. She seems to have struggled with her mental health, After the birth of her son Louis in 1373, Joanna had a complete mental breakdown. Charles V was so terrified for his wife that he made pilgrimages and prayed desperately for her recovery. Once apparently healed, she was made legal guardian of France and of her son if he should become king as a minor. But that would not come to pass. Joanna died in 1378, two years before her husband. Mental health issues seem to have been part of Joanna's family story. Her father is noted as suffering nervous breakdowns as well as her own problems. Joanna's brother Louis seems to have suffered too. Joanna's grandfather also had episodes of mental ill health, suggesting a strong hereditary predisposition to such complications. 
Charles VI became King of France on the death of his father on the 16th of September 1380, at the age of 11. He was crowned on the 4th of November at Rheims Cathedral, the traditional location for the coronation of Capetian kings. Charles was a member of the Valois dynasty, a cadet branch of the Capetian line. The House of Capet, named for Hugh Capet, its founder, ruled France in the direct male line between 987 and 1328. It was the end of this male line of descent that led in part to the Hundred Years' War, when Edward III of England's claim was overlooked in favour of Philip VI, a grandson of Philip III and the son of the Count of Valois, thus beginning the line of kings of the House of Valois and sparking problems with England. As Charles VI was a minor and his mother, who had been designated a potential regent, had already passed away, he was represented by his uncles. Interestingly, although it was possible for a king to be considered to have reached the age of majority at 14, Charles would remain under the control of his regents until he was 21. Whether this spoke to concerns about his mental health or to the greed of his uncles is hard to determine. Charles' paternal uncles were Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, who was by far the most influential of the regents. Louis I, Duke of Anjou, who was a bit of a political failure and was too preoccupied trying to press his own claim to be King of Naples to help out his nephew much. Louis died in 1384, just four years after Charles became King. John, Duke of Berry, was mainly concerned with his post as Lieutenant General of the Languedoc region in southern France, where, as we'll see, Rebellion kept him busy. John outlived his brothers and later tried to facilitate peace between the factions that erupted in France. The other uncle added to the regency was Charles' maternal uncle, Louis II Duke of Bourbon. The dual problems of his lack of status, since he wasn't the son of a king, and his mental instability meant that he played very little practical role in governing France during the minority. Charles V had left a stable and wealthy kingdom. His brothers shredded all of that hard work. They used crown money and political authority for their own ends and were then forced to implement taxation that Charles V had abolished on his deathbed. The cancelling of taxation was obviously popular, but it ignored the reality of the financial needs of a kingdom frequently at war. The policy of reintroducing the war taxes was, needless to say, deeply unpopular. I mean, who likes taxes or government U-turns? It led to a series of tax revolts known as the Harel in 1382. Plague and war had left France ravaged and demoralised. The previous year had seen the peasants revolt in England against the imposition of excessive rounds of taxation. At the beginning of 1382, Philip the Bold had failed to convince the French administration to accept new taxes. He summoned representatives of the city of Paris before the young king and forced them to accept a tax known as the Gabelle, a tax on the sale of salt, and the reintroduction of customs duties. News of this reached Rouen, the capital of Normandy and France's second largest city. Lying directly in England's line of sight whenever it gazed on Paris, Normandy and Rouen had seen some of the hardest effects of the Hundred Years' War so far. The city was in no mood to roll over, and on the 24th of February, the people took to the streets, shutting the city gates and looting the property of the wealthy. Philip the Bold raised an army, put his nephew, the 13-year-old Charles, on a horse and rode out toward Rouen. I wonder 
whether he had heard of the young Richard II's exploits in England and sought to use his nephew in the same manner. Either way, they never reached Rouen. Two days after leaving Paris, riots erupted there and they were forced to turn back. It took days of violence, siege and negotiation before the royal forces entered Paris again, by which time the unrest had spread to other French cities. The Duke of Berry was occupied trying to regain control of the Languedoc. The ringleaders in Paris were promised clemency but were rounded up and executed. Philip then took Charles to Rouen, which surrendered without a fight. A dozen of the leading rebels were executed, the city gates were removed, a fine was imposed and its charter was revoked. The financial problems caused by these tax riots contributed to the agreement to the Treaty of Lullingham in 1389, ending what is considered the second phase of the Hundred Years' War with England. Charles had taken control of his government in 1388, replacing his uncles with a group of ministers that his father had used. This group was known as the Marmoset, a name recorded by the chronicler Jean Froissart. It was meant to mean monkey, the same as a Marmoset, but was also a name that the French used for the English, presumably because we were such naughty little monkeys invading their lands and killing their people. The removal of his unpopular uncles and a new period of peace with England led to the nickname Charles the Beloved. All was not to remain well for long, though. In 1392, Charles suffered his first recorded instance of mental illness. He was 23, and it set a heartbreaking pattern for the rest of his life. The contemporary chronicler Jean Froissart relates that the king was on his way to begin a military campaign in Brittany. It was August, and the weather was unbearably hot. As the royal party rode through a forest near Le Mans, Froissart tells us, A man, bareheaded, with naked feet, clothed in a jerkin of white russet, that showed he was more mad than otherwise, rushed out from among the trees and boldly seized the reins of the king's horse. Having thus stopped him, he said, King, ride no farther, but return, for thou art betrayed. This speech made such an impression on the king's mind, which was weak, that his understanding was shaken. The old man ran away and was not chased. The royal party rode on, emerging into open plains. As the heat intensified, the party spread out. According to Foissart, Charles rode alone to avoid the dust being kicked up by other horses, followed only by two of his pages. In the heat of the day, the page at the back, who carried a lance, fell asleep or lost consciousness and dropped the weapon. It hit a helmet carried on the horse of the page in front, and the clash rang out harshly around the open ground. Fassar picks up the story, writing that, the king being so near, the pages rode almost on the heels of his horse, was startled and shuddered, for he had in his mind the words the wise man or fool had spoken when he seized the horse's reins in the forest of Le Mans, and fancied a host of enemies were come to slay him. In this distraction of mind, he drew his sword and advanced on the pages, for his senses were quite gone, and imagined himself surrounded by enemies, giving blows of his sword, indifferent on whom they fell, and bawled out, Advance! Advance on these traitors! The pages spurred their horses in different directions. The king's brother, Louis, Duke of Orléans, drew his sword to come to Charles's aid, only for the king to mistake him for an attacker and charge him. Charles chased various men of his party until he was exhausted. None dared raise their sword, even in defence. Although Foissart says he didn't hear of anyone being killed, other sources 
claim that several were left dead by the king's frenzied attack. Eventually, one of his chamberlains grabbed him, his sword was taken, and he was dismounted, laid on the ground to get some shade and some air. Foissart says next that his three uncles and brother approached, but he had lost all knowledge of them, showing no symptoms of acquaintance or affection, but rolled his eyes in his head without speaking to anyone. He then reflected that it must be owned that when all things are considered, it was a great pity for a king of France, who is the most noble and powerful prince in the world, to be thus suddenly deprived of his senses. There could not be any remedy applied, nor any amendment expected, since God willed it should be so. There was concern that the king had been poisoned or bewitched, but no evidence of either could be found, and his physicians confirmed that he was prone to bouts of illness such as this. Charles' chief physician gave his medical opinion. This disorder of the king proceeds from the alarm in the forest and by inheriting too much of his mother's weak nerves. When the court had offered their thanks, in terms of a lack of faeces and a detective, they set about working out how to rule the kingdom while the king was incapacitated. Eventually, it was decided that Charles' brother, Louis, was too young and inexperienced, so his two remaining paternal uncles, the Dukes of Burgundy and Berry, became regents again, with Philip the Bold, the Duke of Burgundy, placed in the senior position. Charles had married Isabel, daughter of the Duke of Bavaria, in 1385. She was heavily pregnant when her husband fell ill, and it was kept from her for a long time to avoid causing her any alarm. The Duchess of Burgundy was placed with the Queen to support her and to reinforce the position of the House of Burgundy as second only to the King and Queen. The Pope, filled with his Christian charity, rejoiced at the news of Charles' illness, claiming it was the result of the King's support for the anti-Pope at Avignon. Clearly, God was annoyed and trying to tell Charles to mind his own business. The anti-Pope reflected on the support Charles had given him and publicly proclaimed that Charles had bought this on himself by failing to destroy the anti-Pope in Rome. No, you're an anti-Pope. I know you are, but what am I? Wow, way to go, medieval Roman church. A physician named William de Harsigny, by now 92 but one-time doctor to Charles' father, was sent to oversee the king's treatment. Wax effigies of Charles were sent to shrines of saints who might intervene in such cases. Doctors laboured, monks prayed, tapers burned, regents took control, and Charles lay in a coma. Foissart lamented that Charles was far out of the way. No medicine could help him. The kingdom of France, he pondered ominously, seems likely to fall into much trouble. Charles did emerge from his disorientating illness, but it would revisit him at regular intervals for the rest of his life. He fell ill in August 1392, and although his recovery isn't well recorded, he was well enough to attend a party on the 29th of January 1393. His doctor advised shielding him from stress, prescribing fun and distraction whenever possible, but it didn't go well. The party is remembered as the Bal des Argents, the ball of the burning men, which might give a hint at what went wrong. The masquerade was held at the Hotel Saint-Paul in Paris, a royal residence where Charles had been born. It was organised by Queen Isabel to celebrate the marriage of one of her ladies-in-waiting. She perhaps had an eye to the doctor's advice to keep Charles distracted and free from stress. The king and five of his young companions erupted onto the dance floor disguised as wild men. Their costumes and masks 
were made of linen with flax attached with resin to give the appearance of shaggy savages. They danced frantically about the floor, howling and shouting as they encouraged the audience to try and guess their identities. Precisely what happened next isn't entirely clear. It may be that Charles's brother, the Duke of Orléans, grabbed a torch to try and see one of the wild men's faces better. A spark dropped onto the man's leg and he burst into flames. The resin used to attach the flax didn't help and soon the other costumed men were on fire too. Queen Isabeau knew her husband was one of them and fainted in fear, but the king was a little apart from the rest and his 15-year-old aunt, the Duchess of Berry, threw her skirts over him to protect him from the sparks and flames. Chaos erupted as guests screamed in pain as they were burned too. Efforts were made to save the men, most still fearing the king was amongst those on fire. The chronicler known as the Monk of Saint-Denis left us a horrifically graphic image of the scene. Men prepare to wince, ladies try not to laugh. The monk wrote that four men were burned alive, their flaming genitals dropping to the floor, releasing a stream of blood. Only two men survived. Charles was safe beneath the Duchess of Berry's skirts and another had managed to jump into a vat of open wine to extinguish the flames. Paris was outraged at the danger the king had been placed in. His uncles did public penance at Notre Dame Cathedral and his brother Louis, Duke of Orléans, who was blamed by most, paid for a chapel to be built. There were some who thought Charles had done it deliberately to try and kill his brother. This kind of suspicion around the Duke would prove hard to shake off. Charles' episodes of mental illness came with a worrying regularity and a deepening intensity from now onwards for the rest of his life. In 1393, the same year as the doomed party, the king made his wife co-guardian of their children, principal guardian of their heir, the Dauphin, but made his brother Orléans regent if required. However, when Charles began to fall ill more regularly, Isabeau was frequently at the head of a regency council. There was lots of debate about whether anyone could be regent for a living monarch who was incapacitated by illness. The Regency Council, headed by the Queen, was the compromise that was reached. This made Isabeau more powerful than Charles' brother or his uncles, and shows the faith both the King and the body politic of France had in her. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. From 1393, frequent periods of illness, interspersed with times when he was entirely lucid, came to dominate Charles' life and French politics. During one episode that year, Charles couldn't remember his own name and had no idea that he was king. In 1394, Charles suddenly issued an edict expelling all Jews from France, though it's unclear whether this was a result of his illness or simply a reflection of prevailing attitudes to Jewish communities in Christian Western Europe. In 1395 and 1396, Charles was convinced he was St George. Frequently, he would roam the royal palaces or even run about the corridors at night so that the entrances had to be bricked up to prevent him from wandering outside. In 1405, he refused to wash or change his clothes for five months. Pope Pius II described Charles often believing that he was made of glass and would shatter if anyone touched him. He would become agitated when courtiers got too close and reportedly had iron bars sewn into his clothes to protect him from being smashed to pieces. The description of Charles' illness became less detailed as the years go by, perhaps because the symptoms were often the same or because it was felt unwise to dwell on them. Some of the worst episodes from a family perspective must have been those during which Charles failed to recognise his wife or his children. The monk of Saint-Denis wrote of the hurt this caused Queen Isabel when she tried to visit her husband. What distressed her above all was to see how, on all occasions, the king repulsed her, whispering to his people, Who is this woman obstructing my view? Find out what she wants and stop her from annoying and bothering me. Since her presence distressed her husband, Isabel moved to another palace, something that's frequently used to suggest that she spurned him, when in fact the opposite is clear. She seemed to be trying to ease his anxiety by removing herself. A mistress was provided for Charles, perhaps with Isabeau's consent. Oddly, the lady was said to resemble Isabeau so much that she was dubbed the Little Queen. Despite this, the royal couple did have more children, and Isabeau was recorded in Charles' company when he was well and lucid. In 1396, he was involved in arranging the marriage of his daughter Isabella of Valois to King Richard II of England, thus halting hostilities between the kingdoms for a time. 
when Charles' uncle, Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, died in 1404, he was succeeded by his son, John the Fearless, Charles' cousin. John tried to get access to royal funds, but Isabeau and Orléans kept him away, believing that, like his father, he would seek to waste it on personal projects. John reacted with a propaganda campaign that accused Isabeau and Orléans of financial mismanagement, and rumours also sprang up, perhaps again begun by John, that the king's wife and his brother were having an affair. The political stability of France, which had been remarkable given the frequent debilitating incapacity of the king, and had been helped by internal problems in England in particular, was brutally shattered in 1407. As night darkened the streets of Paris on the evening of the 23rd of November, Louis, Duke of Orléans, set out to visit his brother the king. Three days earlier, there had been a public display of reconciliation and unity among the royal princes of France. Charles was well, and word reached Louis that the king wished to see him. At eight o'clock in the evening, he mounted his horse, accompanied by a small guard. The duke was dragged down from the saddle as 15 men sprang out from the darkness. His shouts that he was the Duke of Orléans and the king's brother only seemed to incense the attackers further. One of Louis's attendants was wounded while trying to protect his master, but to no avail. Louis's hand was cut off and he was beaten, stabbed and clubbed to death. His broken body was left in the street. A witness identified one of the attackers as a servant of the Duke of Burgundy. When John the Fearless was confronted, he shrugged his shoulders. Yeah, he ordered the king's brother's murder. He denied nothing, admitted to sending men to do it, and what's more, ordered a Paris theologian named Jean Petit to explain why it was a good thing. Petit delivered an oration that made the case for killing a tyrant who assumed royal authority. Anyone should be allowed to do it at any time, without the need for orders or the fear of recriminations. The closer the tyrant was in blood to the king, the worse the crime. The closer the murderer, the more the act should be celebrated. Orléans was unpopular. He favoured taxation and the cause of the anti-pope. Yes, one of those is back again. So John made the case that Orléans was a tyrant and that being the king's brother made it worse. That John had done a good deed, a public service by killing the tyrant and that because John was the king's cousin, the act was even more worthy of praise. John the Fearless got away with murder, literally. Not only that, but he became the leading political force in Paris. Louis's son, Charles, the new Duke of Orléans, was just 13 years old, but lines were drawn in a bitter civil conflict. The adherents of the Duke of Burgundy, known as the Burgundians, fought the adherents of the Duke of Orléans. While Charles was young, he was counselled by his father-in-law, Bernard VII, Count of Armagnac. The Orléans faction took their name from Bernard's title, becoming known as the Armagnacs. The Armagnac-Burgundian feud tore France apart, for the next 28 years. It was this fracture in French polity, slow to come but devastating when it did arrive, that facilitated the renewal of the Hundred Years' War. Henry V came to the throne in England in 1413 and set about arranging an invasion of France. It would help him unify his country and divert attention from the rebellions his father had suffered, but France was also a soft target. The king was ill and the nobles were busy fighting each other. When Henry attacked, France was unable to unite to defend itself. At Agincourt, in 1415, a small English force defeated a much larger army, the flower of French chivalry. 
mainly because the French lacked a single leader to organise them. Charles, Duke of Orléans, was among those captured at Agincourt and remained an English prisoner for the next 25 years. His removal from the political landscape did nothing to end the Troubles, though. In 1419, another assassination escalated the war with England. Charles' heir, the Dauphin, was now his fifth son, the future Charles VII. As well as five sons, including one younger than the Dauphin, the royal couple had lost two daughters by this time. They now had four living daughters and one remaining son. The Dauphin was 16 years old. He'd met with the Duke of Burgundy several times through the year to try and clear the air, to heal the Armagnac-Burgundian rift that was demonstrably placing all of France at risk. Eventually, the pair agreed to a formal alliance to be sealed at a meeting on a bridge over the River Seine at Montereau on the 10th of September 1419. Doors were placed at either end of the bridge to create a room for the meeting to take place. It was agreed that the Dauphin and John would each take just ten men inside with them. When the meeting began, John the Fearless knelt in deference to the Dauphin, who ignored him. John rose, offended, and placed his hand on the pommel of his sword as an expression of his annoyance and as a vague threat. One of the Dauphin's men chastised the Duke for daring to place his hand on his sword in the Prince's presence, but another immediately flew at the Duke, smashing him across the face with an axe. More of the Dauphin's men rushed in, and as the Prince stood back, John the Fearless was beaten and stabbed to death. Some reports claim his hand was cut off in vengeance for the murder of the Dauphin's uncle, the Duke of Orléans. John had been the leading political force in France during Charles VI's illness. There were some rumours that he'd also been responsible for the deaths of two of Charles' sons, Louis and John. As well as the assassination of Orléans, there were many reasons the Dauphin might have wanted John out of the way. There is also the possibility that the rest of the Armagnac faction feared a reconciliation that would diminish their influence over the prince. If they thought they'd achieved a victory on that bridge that day, they were soon to be proven wrong. John the Fearless had always shied away from an alliance with the English in order to keep his position in Paris. With his death, his son, Philip the Good, the new Duke of Burgundy, abandoned that policy and made a formal agreement to help Henry V of England. This moment turned the tide so much that later, in 1521, it was reported that Francis I, then King of France, visited Burgundy. A monk showed him the skull of John the Fearless, pointing out the missing bit where the axe had struck him and telling the king, Sire, this is the hole through which the English entered France. When Charles VI was once more lucid, he was disgusted and outraged by his son's behaviour at Montereau. Amidst the military failures of his subjects, he opened peace talks with Henry V. The result of this was the Treaty of Troyes, sealed on the 21st of May, 1420. This treaty arranged for the marriage of Henry V to Charles' daughter, Catherine of Valois. It also utterly disinherited the Dauphin Charles. Henry was made regent of France and heir to the throne. Charles' capacity to enter into such a legal agreement must be suspect, but Queen Isabel seems to have backed the arrangement and the disinheritance of her son too. The Dauphin was furious and declared himself regent of France for his father. His cause suffered another blow when a court in Paris summoned him to answer charges of laissez-majesté, the usurping of the powers of the crown. He failed to attend and in his absence was found guilty, legally disinherited and exiled from France. Henry V 
would spend much of the next two years consolidating his hold on France and trying to squeeze the Dauphin out of the pocket of territory that remained loyal to him. On the 31st of August, 1422, Henry V died aged 35, contracting dysentery while on campaign. He left behind a nine-month-old baby to succeed him as King Henry VI in England. Charles VI then died just weeks later, on the 21st of October, 1422, aged 53. Had Henry V lived longer, the political map of Europe might have looked very different. The infant Henry VI was now, legally, on paper, King of France too. Making that stick would prove incredibly difficult. The Dauphin, styling himself King Charles VII, was resurgent. Despite an agreement between England, Burgundy and Brittany in 1423 to support Henry VI's claim, the arrival of Joan of Arc in 1429 turned the tide. Burgundy broke with England in 1435 and the war was probably settled in that moment, though it lasted until around 1453 when the Battle of Castillon is often seen as the end of the Hundred Years' War. Charles VI was beloved of his people as his nickname demonstrated. Despite this, he was frequently a detached, unaware observer of his own reign. Perhaps his illness allowed his people to separate him from the problems of the reign and blame those on those who squabbled for power in the vacuum created. For 30 years, Charles was affected on and off by severe bouts of mental illness that prevented him from ruling. His uncles initially stepped into the breach but became unpopular as they pursued selfish projects with royal power and funds. Then his brother tried, but was equally unpopular and ended up assassinated. His killer, in turn, was murdered after taking power in France. Queen Isabel frequently led her husband's government in an attempt to create unity. Charles' final significant decision was to disinherit his own son. Was this something forced on a sick man? Or did he see, in a lucid moment, that France was spiralling out of control when he wasn't able to rule? Was he genuinely disgusted by his son's actions? His reign was one of political problems caused by his illness, but also one which demonstrates the power of the French crown as an institution. It couldn't be broken by a king who was frequently unable to wield his own power, nor by his unpopular advisers. The situation almost led to England's ultimate success in the Hundred Years' War, when an English king became heir to the French crown. The sequence of events in 1422 meant that the arrangement floundered and fell apart. If Henry V had lived a little longer, history may tell a different story, but he didn't. Thirty years after the death of Charles VI, his grandson, Henry VI of England, would suffer a mental collapse and fall into a year of comatose detachment from the world. This must have been a legacy of the hereditary condition Charles had acquired from his mother's family. England would face the same problems that had left France wide open to internal strife and, almost, conquest from abroad. When Henry's wife, Margaret of Anjou, staked her claim to control of their son and a leading role in regency, it went a long way to sparking the civil war known as the Wars of the Roses. Queen Isabel had demonstrated how successfully this could be done, and doubtless Margaret, born and raised in France, saw this as the natural template from which to operate. England saw things very differently. The Wars of the Roses was almost a carbon copy of the Armagnac-Burgundian feud two generations earlier in France, except that in England it ended with dynastic change and the end of Henry VI's line. 
Charles is a fascinating figure, even though he's frequently removed from his own story by his illness. In an age more aware of mental health, we can perhaps offer more sympathy for his situation, though he remained beloved of his people. Charles died 600 years ago, but his story can still speak to us today, a struggle to manage family, life and work that can all too easily have a devastating impact on mental health. These struggles aren't new, and if they affect you or a loved one, you've never been alone in that. There's always help out there. The hardest part is often admitting that we need it. We all need help sometimes, and asking for it is never weakness. It shows strength and an understanding of yourself. You can join Dr Kat Jarman on Tuesday for another brand new episode. Don't forget to also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and to tell your friends and family that you've gone medieval. If you get a moment, please do drop us a review anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. It really does help people to find us. If you're enjoying this podcast and looking for more medieval goodness in your life, you can subscribe to our Medieval Mondays newsletter by following the links in the show notes below. Anyway, I'd better let you go. I've been Matt Lewis, and we've just gone medieval with History Hits. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.